you know, back in summers uh, while I was in, in college, I would go back home to my, my church back home and uh, intern there with the student ministries department and uh, served there during the summers. And it was the church where Chuck Swindoll pastored. And I remember meeting with him and the rest of us college students who were eager, uh, either Bible college students, some of them were seminary students, and we were back there trying to get some ministry experience and serve the church. And I remember meeting with, uh, with Pastor Chuck and, and him sitting there with us at uh, this big conference table. And he looked around the table at us and he said, man, I want to tell you something. He said, if you can see yourself being happy doing anything other than ministry, I want you to go and do that instead. And what he was doing, he was actually parroting something or paraphrasing something that he had himself heard and read from Charles Spurgeon, who used to give the same advice to men that he would be discipling and raising up to go into ministry. But I remember hearing that and thinking to myself, wow, that's amazing to, to hear somebody say something like that. If you can see yourself being happy doing literally anything else, go do it. Later on, while I was in seminary and attending a church in Dallas, my pastor at the time told me of the, uh, the calling that he had experienced to, to go into ministry when he knew that God was calling him to, to give his life to pastoral ministry. And he told me of being at Alistair Begg's church and going and, and sitting down with Alistair and, and saying, Pastor Alistair, look, I feel like God is calling me to go into full-time ministry. And Alistair kind of looked back at him across the table and said, no, John, I don't think he is. And John, my pastor at the time then in seminary said, well, okay, I, uh, all right, and, and got up and walked out. Well, John was a Secret Service agent, and his career continued to progress, and he continued to, to do well as, a, as an agent. He finally got the call to go on to presidential protective detail. So he was going to go to Washington, D.C. at the time Clinton was president, and he was going to go on to his protective detail. But John couldn't shake the feeling that he was being called to ministry. And so he went back to Alistair and he sat down with him and he said, look, Alistair, a little while ago, a few years ago, I sat down with you and I told you that I, I felt like God was putting a call on my heart to go into ministry. And John said, and you looked at me, Alistair, and you said, no, I don't think he is. And I, I just want to know why, because I haven't been able to shake the call. And Alistair looked back at John and he said, John, the reason is, is because all I had to do was tell you no, and that was enough for you. You got up and walked out, no questions. He said, you weren't ready. Well, it turned out John was ready at that time. But Alistair's point and, and Pastor Chuck's point was the same, essentially, and it's this. Ministry is a difficult thing. It's a difficult thing to, to take under uh, your responsibility, to take on as your responsibility, shepherding the flock of God, as Peter's going to say in our text today. It's a hard thing to be a pastor, and there's going to be times when facing difficulty, you're going to be tempted to jump ship where a pastor is tempted to, to look around and say, well, well, what about this career over here? Or, oh, I, I always thought about what if I went and did this instead? Or maybe if I had gone and, and studied this instead of what I studied, maybe I'd be in a different place. And see, from Spurgeon to Chuck Swindoll to Alistair Begg, all of them knew the same thing, and that is this. If you aren't fully committed to the work of the ministry, if you aren't entirely sold out to be God's man, God's shepherd of God's flock, then you're not going to last. See, the, the reality is to be God's shepherd of God's flock, men, we need God's people praying for us to be effective in that role. 
And that's what I want to challenge you with. That's what I want to ask you to do for us in our passage this week in 1 Peter. So open up your Bibles if you've got them. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. We'll pick up and read the, the text. It says this, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness to, of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Man, this passage is addressed to pastors. It's addressed to elders, to shepherds. The word elder and pastor, it's the, the same word in the Greek there. There's a, a, a carryover there. There's, there's no difference between somebody who's an elder and somebody who's a pastor. They're both called to do the same thing, to shepherd the flock of God. And here at our, our church, Compass Bible Church in Elisa Viejo, our elders are our pastors. And so as this is written, it's written to those nine men who sit around the table weekly together here in our meetings. It's written to the nine men who are shepherding and leading the flock through uh, overseeing our subcongregational ministries. It's written to, to Pastor Mike as he stands up and preaches to us week in and week out so faithfully. And maybe you're thinking to yourself, so what then does this have to do with me? Because that's not me. I'm a, a businessman. I'm a, I, I work in the, the banking field. I, I work in the construction industry. I'm retired. What, what does this all have to do with me? Why, why do I need to read about this passage where Peter's writing to pastors, telling them that they need to shepherd the flock of God in these ways? Well, here's what I'm going to encourage you men to, to think about in this passage. Like I said at the beginning, at the outset, what Peter is calling us to do what Peter is calling the nine of us to do is, is a difficult thing to do. And it's not something that we can do in our own abilities. It's not something that in our flesh we can work up the, the abilities and the mindset and the attitude to be able to carry out what Peter is calling us to do. And so men, how does this passage apply to you? Well, I think it applies to you in the fact that Peter is calling you to pray for us because we need your prayers. And there's gonna be three ways specifically that I'm gonna challenge you to pray for us as we walk through this passage. Look at verse one, Peter says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Peter begins with the word so, which is actually in the Greek, the word therefore. He's connecting back to where he's been in the preceding context. And some have wondered, what is the connection? Peter's been talking about suffering. Peter's been talking about uh, suffering well, being righteous in the face of unjust opposition and, and trials. And so how does it connect now that he turns to talk to elders and pastors? Well, I think the connection is clear if we think about it, right? A church that is facing suffering, a church that is going to face persecution, a church that's going to face trials needs to be led by godly leaders. And so as Peter was writing to these churches in the dispersion, scattered about as a result of persecution, he was writing to them saying, you know, this is what you as individual believers need to be doing. This is how the wholeness, the, the entirety of the body of Christ locally, this is how everybody needs to be operating. And now at the end, he drills down to the leadership and he says, you know, you also need godly leaders. And Peter says, I exhort. It's a word in the Greek, parakaleo, which means to, to call alongside. Come with me. I exhort you as a fellow elder. 
See, Peter himself was a leader of the church. He was a shepherd. Think to the, the passage in John chapter 21 where Peter's walking with Jesus on the beach and Jesus restores him from the threefold denial with a threefold question, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And after each one, Peter says, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus says, then feed my lambs, feed my sheep, tend my flock, right? It's a, a shepherding picture that Jesus charges with Peter. And so Peter is writing to these church leaders. He's writing to us as pastors. He's writing to the church at large, not as somebody who's not on the ground doing this, but as a fellow elder. He says, so I exhort you as a fellow elder and though, he says, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. See, Peter wasn't just writing as your average Joe elder that was in some church. No, he was writing with apostolic authority. Peter's saying, I was a witness. I was there. I saw him arrested. I saw him betrayed. I was following at a distance, and yes, it was one of the moments of my greatest shame, but I was there. I saw his, his death and his crucifixion. I, I saw the resurrected Jesus. I'm a witness. I am, what he's saying here is, he's saying, I'm an apostle. And so as an apostle, my words carry the authority, the apostolic authority that needs to be heard and needs to be obeyed and needs to be embraced. And so Peter is saying, this is important. I'm going to exhort you as one who's in the trenches with you, but I'm also going to exhort you as an apostle. I'm going to exhort you as one who carries the authority of an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. What is he going to exhort us? Verse 2 of chapter 5, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. This is the, the central command of the entire passage. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Again, think back to Peter's interaction with Jesus on the beach. There's no accident here that Peter uses the language of being a shepherd because that's the language that he himself had been commissioned with by Jesus. Or think back to John chapter 10 as Peter would have been listening to the words of Christ when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And so Peter had been commissioned by the good shepherd, the chief shepherd, as he'll say here in the passage, to be a faithful under shepherd of the flock of God, to be one who cares for the flock as a steward of the chief shepherd. And so Peter is writing to us as pastors saying, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And he says, exercising oversight. It's the, the participial form of the, the, the noun for elder. It's the noun episkopos. It's a, a, a verbal noun in the Greek. And so he's just saying, basically, by saying exercising oversight, he's essentially saying, do the work of an elder. Shepherd the flock of God by doing the work of an elder, by being a faithful leader. And we have passages that lay out for us the qualifications of an elder. You look at, at Titus chapter 1 or 1 Timothy chapter 3. But really in, in 1 Peter chapter 5, we get down into the nuts and bolts then of what does that look like? What does that look like on the ground? I, I know what the qualifications are, but how should I be living that out? How do I need to be caring for the flock of God, accepting the responsibility that's been charged to me to, to shepherd the flock well? You think of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 13, where it says there, or sorry, Hebrews chapter 13 verse 17, pardon me. Hebrews 13, 17, where it says there that the, the elders, the pastors, the leaders of the church are going to have to give an account for every soul under their care. And so that's a, a, a tall order. It's a high calling. That's a great responsibility that as elders, we have to take on to ourselves and accept the responsibility as pastors to do that. 
And Peter's saying we need to do that well. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight. And then he's going to explain what that looks like and how we do that. Verse 2, he continues on, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So be an elder, accept that responsibility, not under compulsion. In other words, not out of necessity or constraint, not because you're being forced to do that or because you feel like you have to do it, but willingly or eagerly as God would have you. See, the call to ministry is not the same as opening up your mailbox one day and pulling out that thing that you look at and you go, oh no, I know what this is. And you open it up and sure enough on the inside, it says you've been summoned to appear as a potential juror, right? The call to ministry is not like getting jury duty. When you find out, yeah, or when you start to, to feel like, okay, God, I feel like maybe you're calling me into the ministry. It's not this like, oh, Man, I wanted to go be a lawyer, but uh, fine, I'm going to go do ministry. Uh, I wanted to go be a baseball player, but uh, I guess I'll do ministry instead. It's, it's not a burden. When you are, are being called into ministry, it's a, a, a joyful thing that you experience. It's a weighty thing. It, it, it's a, it's a so, sober calling that you feel. You understand the responsibility involved, but it's something that you desire to do. Our context is a little bit different than Peter's when he was writing, because when Peter was writing, uh, the, the elders were appointed by the apostles. Acts chapter 14, verse 23 says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So there you see the, the apostles appointing elders in the churches there, the local churches, because of the apostolic authority that they had. They were setting up the church, organizing it, structuring it, which is what Paul writes to to Titus in Titus 1.5. He says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This appointment was one that wasn't to be accepted, is what Peter is saying, by a man who felt like he was being obligated to do it. Okay, I don't really want to do this, but I'm being compelled to do this. I'm under a compulsion to do this. And so Peter's saying, if, if that's it, that, that's, that's not being an elder. An elder doesn't shepherd the flock of God under the the weight of compulsion. Rather, 1 Timothy 3.1, as Paul writes, an elder is somebody who desires it. Paul says there, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, a pastor, an elder, he desires a noble task. And so the man who's being called to shepherd the flock of God is not a man who's being called against his will to shepherd the flock of God. It's not a man who's being forced into this. This is a man who desires to do it, who has a a willingness to do it. And so men, as you think about this passage, as you think about the nine pastors here at our church, I would ask that you would continue to pray for us this. Pray that we would have a willing and submissive spirit. That's our first point together this week. Pray for a willing and submissive spirit for your pastors. Just as in any arena in life, having a a willing spirit is going to make you a more effective participant. My sons, Joshua and Luke now is, are, are playing, Joshua's playing kid pitch, Luke is playing t-ball, although not right now, nobody's playing anything right now, uh, but they were playing. And I remember, I've watched Joshua play baseball now for probably six or seven years, and he's gone through, and he's finally now at the age where in kid pitch, he's at the level where the, the kids that are out there, they want to be out there. He's at the age where it's no longer mom and dad going, hey, you should go play baseball, with the kid going, I don't want to go play baseball. But believe me, I went through plenty of years with Joshua and I'm ready to go through those years again with Luke 
where you just can see the kid that's out in the field that has no desire to be there. He is not a willing participant. He maybe has a little bit of a submissive spirit to mom and dad and that he's out there, but that's where it ends. He's like, all right, fine, I'm going to obey because mom and dad are making me be here, but I'm going to sit down in the outfield. I'm going to pick the dandelions. I'm going to pick my nose. I'm going to I'm going to turn around. I'm going to look up in the sky. And if the ball comes anywhere near me, I am not interested in picking it up, right? That kid. And that kid, unfortunately, is not just there in T-ball. He's there in coach pitch. He's there in the first levels of, of kid pitch as well. But by the time where you start getting hit by a ball that's being thrown about 60 miles an hour, 65 miles an hour, those kids are, are usually gone at that point, right? If you're asking me to stand in the batter's box and be beamed by a kid who can't throw the ball over the plate, I, I'm out, mom and dad. Sorry. See, a, a, a willing spirit makes you a more effective participant because it's those kids that want to be there. Those are the ones that rise to the top, right? Those are the ones that are out there and they're hustling. They're diving for the ball. They're getting dirty. They're making the plays in the field. They're running hard after the ball to, when it's hit to them. They're running hard to first base. There's a, a different level of effectiveness in those that want to be there. Well, men, you should want your pastors to have a willing and submissive spirit when it comes to being a shepherd of the flock of God. You should want us men to, to say, okay, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight. Let me at it. I want to be there. I want to do that. Not just nine to five, but, but this is my life's calling. I'm all in, Lord. The demands on, on ministry, men, just the, the stark reality, it's, it's a high demand on our time, on our talent, on our treasure. It's a, it's a, a thing that, that you can't leave when you go home. When I go home, it's not as though I can just leave work behind and, and go home to be with my family. And I'm not throwing myself a pity party here. Please don't hear me say that. I'm, I'm asking you to pray for me because I, I need that. We need that. Because when we go home to be with our families and then we get the call to go to the hospital, we need a willing spirit, a submissive spirit to go with joy because this is part of what it means to be a shepherd of the flock of God. And so men, pray for us that way. There are things about ministry that are just joyful that stir our affections for Christ as pastors. And each, each of us as pastors are, are different in this arena. But if you ask me, uh, the, the things that, that bring joy to me, that are easy for me to say, yeah, Lord, I, I've got a willing and submissive spirit in this. Or when I think about preaching and teaching, doing this, what I'm doing right now, I love doing this. This is not a burden for me at all. To, to study for this, message prep, not a burden at all. Discipleship, meeting together with other men, Meeting for breakfast, coffee, those things. I love doing those things. That, that's, that's not a burden for me at all. Counseling wins. When you see God just work in, in the midst of a crisis, when you see a, a man struggling with the sin, overcome that sin through biblical counseling, when you see a couple whose marriage has been hurting, when you see that marriage restored through God working through counseling, that's a, a joyful thing in the life of a, a pastor. Going on retreats, going on our men's retreat last year was a, a blast. I loved it. Being there on the campground with the other men, singing together as men, hearing from those messages and, and being challenged as, as men. I, I love doing stuff like that. That is, is certainly in no way, shape or form a, a burden for me. But then there are other things that are, are more difficult. Let's put it that way to find joy in. Administrative things. There are, are pastors who are like, let me add administration. It's my bread and butter. I love to organize things. I love to plan things. I love to map things out. That's, that's where my wheelhouse is. For me, men, that's not where my wheelhouse is. I just, it's not at the top of my to-do list to, uh, to, to plan something or to set a budget. That's just not how I do it, how I operate. I do those things because I need to and it's part of the job, right? 
but you need to pray for me even there, that I would have a willing and submissive spirit to do that with everything that I have, to see that that's an extension of my call to shepherd the flock of God. Late, late night emergency calls. Man, those are hard because you're never stepping into a situation that's joyful at that time, right? And so as a, as a pastor, that's not something that brings me joy because that's so often something where you're entering into the pain of somebody else. And it's, it's a joy to be able to be used by God in that situation, but it's, it's hard. You're weeping with those who weep. You're mourning with those who mourn. You're going to the hospital in the midst of a tragedy and, and, and trying to be a, a, a voice of comfort to people. And so pray for us there for a willing and submissive spirit. Difficult counseling situations, same thing there. See, if a pastor doesn't possess a willing, submissive spirit, if a pastor is not eager to do this, if a pastor is doing this under compulsion, then he's not going to last. There are statistics that are out there that talk about uh, the the work on a pastor, the, the burnout that the pastors experience, if, if we want to categorize that as something. And I found one of those called the Aquila Report. This was based on 2009. And, and I would imagine, men, that these numbers have stayed the same or gone up since then. But at this point in time, 75% of pastors reported being extremely stressed or highly stressed. 90% of them work between 55 to 75 hours per week. 90% feel fatigued and worn out every week. 40% report a, a serious conflict with a parishioner at least once a month. 78% were forced to resign, 63% at least twice, most commonly because of church conflict. 80%, listen to this, 80% of these pastors that were surveyed will not be in ministry 10 years later, and only a fraction make it a lifelong career. Men, we need you to pray for us. Because the, the, the job is, is, is not an easy job. The calling is not an easy calling. And then if we don't have you lifting us up in prayer, then we become a statistic because we need you praying for us. This is not something that, that is a, a, a giftedness in and of ourselves. This is something where God's shepherd needs God's spirit to work in him and God's people to be praying for him to be effective. And especially in this area of being willing and submissive in ministry. Peter continues to describe the work of an elder here. He says, they must exercise oversight, verse two, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then in verse four, he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The second warning Peter provides for the shepherd of God's flock pertains to our motivation as we shepherd the flock. We need a willing and submissive spirit. And we also need a spirit that's not greedy for selfish gain. And this isn't just money, right? Our greed can extend beyond the realm of material things. As a pastor, we can fall into the, the trap of being hungry for notoriety, for fame, for praise, for position, for title. We can want the, the recognition and the applause of men. Those are things that, that if that's our motivation as we shepherd the flock, then we are shepherding the flock for shameful gain. In fact, I'd say this, if a pastor's drive is for anything that heaps praise on them above Christ, then they've gone off the rails. Then now we're in a position of, of doing this, of shepherding the flock of God for shameful gain. And, and again, in this area, men, we need you to continue to pray for us. We need you to pray for our humility and, and for our eternal mindset. And that's our second point this week. Pray for humility and an eternal mindset. Pray for humility and an eternal mindset. 
this is, uh, man, something that, that is always on my mind. And, and really, honestly, with things like the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel and these national conferences and Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, the, 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 the opportunity, the desire, the threat of, of longing to be one of these celebrity pastors is something that's real, quite honestly. If I send out that tweet, how many retweets am I going to get? How many likes am I going to get? God's been really good at humbling with me with that. Let's just say that, put it that way, right? Um, I'm not really paying attention to that anymore. Because uh, when your like count is like one or two, it, it just puts an end to that desire right there. But that desire for notoriety, it's real. It's there. Pastors are put in the public spotlight and they're, look at this guy, listen to this sermon. Here's this video, watch this. And the temptation to want the applause of men is real. And I just want to be honest with you, man. We need you to pray for us to pray that we would be humble, to pray that we would have an eternal mindset. Because look at verse four again. Peter says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. See, our motivation, men, is not the applause of men, but the acclaim of God. It's God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. That's our motivation. That's our drive. Our drive is not for reward here on earth. Our drive is the unfading crown of glory that awaits us. Like the Apostle Paul said towards the end of his life when he said, I'm being poured out and now there exists for me a, a crown of righteousness, right? That's, being, that, that's waiting for me. He's looking forward to that reward. And so, man, that's, that's what we need to have as pastors is our drive. Not the acclaim of men, not the recognition here, but we need the, the, the focus that's on the acclaim of God and, and the recognition that God will one day award to us when he says, well done, good and faithful servants. And so we need you to pray for our humility and our eternal mindset. See, every time a pastor takes the pulpit, it's an opportunity for the flesh to rear its ugly head. As we preach, it's an opportunity for us to be thinking about how this message is going to be received. It's an opportunity for us to be thinking about how many men will comment on this afterwards. How many men will like this afterwards? How many men will give me a pat on the back afterwards, verbally or literally for how I just preached? And I'm not discouraging you men from doing that because pastors need encouragement. But at the same time, men, I just want you to know as you pray for us that that is a, a, a battleground for us. Man, every time a, a pastor steps foot into the counseling office is an opportunity for the flesh. It's an opportunity for us to think to ourselves, well, here's an opportunity for me to be the voice of wisdom and reason. Here's an opportunity for me to be the hero of this marriage, the hero of this man struggling with this sin. Here's an opportunity for me to, to prove somebody wrong, to win an argument. And man, that's just wrong. That's just prideful from us. And so we need you to pray for us as we enter into the counseling office that we would do so humbly, that we would do so saying to, to ourselves and also to our counselees, you know what, the, the power to save this marriage, the power to free you from this sin is not in anything that I'm going to tell you. It's in the word of God and in the spirit of God working in and through you. We're but an instrument, men. Men, every time the pastor sits down at his desk to study for a sermon is an opportunity for the flesh to rear its ugly head as we interact with our education and our training and we bring those tools to bear on the word of God to help us understand it better. It's an opportunity for us in our flesh to think that we are wise or smart or intelligent, to think that we have some great insight that we're gonna bring to this passage, that we're gonna bring to this text and to puff ourselves up. Man, we need you to pray for us for humility as we're in the pulpit, as we're in the study, as we're preparing for the pulpit. 
pray that we would be humble, that we would say, God, teach us. Lord, may we preach to ourselves before we preach to anyone else. May you convict us with what you want us to to learn from this passage before you convict anyone else. Lord, make the study a place of sanctification for me and not a place of pride. And we, we need your prayers. I need your prayers in this regard to pray that I would continue to be humble and that I would continue to develop that eternal mindset, that I wouldn't look for earthly reward, but I would be focused on eternal reward, that I wouldn't look for the applause of men, but that I would be longing for and desiring for the acclaim of God to say, well done, good and faithful servant, because I I don't want to end up like, and I don't want to be like Simon from the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 13, it says this, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news, the gospel about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now jump down to verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he wanted people to be amazed by him again. They were enraptured with him. They were obsessed with Simon. Look at Simon. Simon's so great. Simon's so wonderful. And then the apostles come on and they hear the good news and they're saved. And now all of a sudden, they're not infatuated with Simon and his dark arts anymore. Now all of a sudden, they're going, okay, we're infatuated with God. And they received the Holy Spirit. And as they received the Holy Spirit, and as it was testified so visibly during the book of Acts, Simon sees that happen and he goes, well, I want that because that amazes me. And if I can do that, then people will be amazed again with me. And so he offers money to the, to the apostles for the, the ability to do the same thing, to give the Holy Spirit. And Peter says to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Man, it's such a temptation in ministry for us to want people to be impressed with us instead of impressed with our savior. And so men, our job is to preach the word of God and have people leave the auditorium saying, isn't God amazing? Not isn't he amazing? Isn't the pastor amazing? Isn't God amazing? Men, our job is to to have a couple leave the counseling office and say, wow, God is so powerful and gracious to do what he does to restore our marriage, to free me from this sin. Not to say, wow, Pastor PJ was so great in his insight and what he brought into our marriage. Man, our job in studying to prepare, to preach a sermon is for us to be amazed by God. It is for us to be amazed by the Spirit teaching us not to, to sit back and pat ourselves on the back and say, well, aren't I a, a wise person to be able to see that in the, the Word of God? That's pretty impressive. See, man, it's so insidious when we make ministry about us instead of about God. And so pray that we wouldn't. Pray that we would be humble. And as Peter says, that we would do so eagerly, that we would shepherd the flock of God eagerly, that we would embrace the mindset that Jesus had when he said, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Our spirit, our mindset needs to be at a pat. Anything, any place, 
anytime. We as pastors need to be leading the charge in that, not for selfish gain, but humbly and seeking the reward that matters, which is eternal rewards. Because the opposite is not really a pretty picture, and that's what Peter paints for us in, in verse 3. He says, as you shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, he says, you're not to do it by doing this, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock, not domineering. See, it's so often that a pastor who is doing things for selfish gain is also a pastor who's going to be lording it over his flock. And that's what it means to domineer. It means to be, uh, to be heavy-handed. Just recently, we read about in our daily Bible reading, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And, and Rehoboam, as he took the throne, he was trying to, to gain some wisdom. And he called together the older counselors to him. And he said to them, what do you recommend that I do? And these men who had walked with his father, David, said, you need to be compassionate and kind to the people. You need to not be domineering to them. And then he called together the young men. And the young men came to him and said, no, you need to to say, look, my pinky is thicker than my father's thigh and you need to lay it on them hard. And he used whips. I'm going to use scorpions on you, right? And so what they recommended was that Rehoboam rule with a domineering spirit. And unfortunately, Rehoboam listened to the young men. See, as pastors, we cannot be domineering. In fact, Jesus addressed that with his disciples in Matthew 10, 42 through 45. He says this, and Jesus called them to him. And this was right after they were upset because of a question of of James and John about sitting at the right hand. Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, in other words, you know that the unbelievers, you know that the the world, you know that the pagans, the Gentiles, they lord it over their subjects and the great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, men, as as pastors, as elders, we are an under-shepherd of the good shepherd. The good shepherd has paved the way for us. And the good shepherd did not domineer. The good shepherd did not lord it over those that he came to serve, not to be served by. No, instead, the good shepherd, what did he do? The good shepherd knelt down and and took off his outer garments and he girded himself and he took a wash basin and he washed the feet of his followers. The good shepherd, he's the one who was patient with his disciples, who taught them even when they were stubborn, even when they were hard of hearts and slow to believe, he was patient with them. That was the good shepherd. The good shepherd had compassion on the crowds as as though they were sheep without a shepherd. The good shepherd was the one who was opened with, with eyes wide open, went to the, the cross, was betrayed by one of his own, whom he knew was going to betray him. See, that was the, the good shepherd. The good shepherd went to the cross, as Philippians chapter 2 says, humbly obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The good shepherd listened to the, the mocking of the crowd. The good shepherd listened to people saying, physician, heal yourself, knowing full well that he could easily heal himself. And yet he didn't because the good shepherd gave his life as a ransom for many. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And men, as pastors, that's something that we need to be willing to do. And domineering is the opposite of that. Lording it over people is the opposite of doing what Jesus has called us to do. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. At the same time, the shepherd is one who walks in front of the sheep. 
who walks the path that the sheep are to follow. And they hear his voice and they follow him. John 10, three through four. The sheep hear his voice, the shepherd's voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. See, this is the picture of the shepherd of God's church, of God's flock. It's one who leads the sheep, not by domineering over them, not cruelly. He's not beating them with the rod that he carries. No, he's going before them. He's walking the path that he wants them to follow in. And he's calling them to follow him. Just like the apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Follow me only insofar as I follow Christ. As the under shepherd follows the good shepherd. And so men, that implies that we as pastors are living a life worth following that we're not domineering, that we're not sinfully lording it over our authority over the flock, but that we are shepherding the flock humbly, that we are shepherding the flock eagerly, that we are shepherding the flock willingly. And it also implies that we are being examples of the flock, leading a life that we can call others as well to follow. Our third point this week is this, pray for a winsome integrity. Pray for a winsome integrity. Man, there are plenty of televangelists out there, if you turn on the television, who have a winsomeness about them. You watch them, you see them, and, and they're nice and they're kind. They've got a bright, flashy smile, and you think to yourself, hey, that's a, that's a nice guy. I, I want to listen to him because he seems kind. He seems compassionate. He seems nice. He's well-spoken. He's well-dressed. He's winsome. But the problem is they're not living a life that they can say, hey, follow me. They're not adhering to the word of God. They're not holding out the word of God and saying, follow me as I follow Christ by living out what I'm preaching. They're not doing that. In fact, they're leading people astray. They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And so they may have the winsomeness, but they don't have the integrity. On the other hand, there are plenty of pastors out there who may be men of, of integrity, who are holy and godly men following Christ, but yet these men at the same time are placing unnecessary burdens on their flock. They're ruling with a heavy hand. They are not winsome. They are not endearing themselves to the sheep. They're not a man that you look at and you say, I want to follow him because I can tell that he loves me, that he cares for me, that he wants to be with me, that he's got compassion for me. And so men, there's the the two sides of the road that, that are pits that we can fall into. We can err on the side of being winsome, but not being a man of integrity. And that's against what God has called us to be as pastors. On the other hand, we can be men of integrity, but we can be lacking in that, that winsomeness, lacking in that, that compassion, lacking in, in shepherding the, the flock well in that regard. And, and that's just as much of an error for us if we put undue burdens by domineering over the flock. And so we need to walk the middle of the path, men. Again, this is an area that we need your prayers in. Prayers for us to be men who genuinely care for the flock who genuinely have that winsomeness that, that as we preach, that you feel a connection with us that says that this guy cares about me, even through a computer screen. That as we interact with you in the church and, and on the patio, eventually when we can get back together, that you understand that we love you and that we're not just there for appearances sake, but we're there because we, we care for you. Men pray for that. And then men also pray for our integrity. The enemy would love nothing more than to undermine the leaders of this church through sin. And so pray that we would be men leading a life that we could call you honestly to say, follow us. That we would be leading a life that is providing an example for the flock. That we would be leading a life that we could say with the apostle Paul, 
be imitators of us because we are imitating Christ. Follow us insofar as we follow Christ. So pray for us in that regard. Man, God's shepherd needs God's spirit to shepherd God's flock, but we need God's flock. We need God's people to be praying for us in those endeavors. It's not an easy task. The words of of Chuck Swindoll, when he said, if you can see yourself doing anything else that would make you happy, go and do it. was stuck with me for some time and led me to really consider things and to look around and say, is there anything else that I would rather go do other than doing ministry? And eventually I came to the conclusion, no, this is all I want to do. This is all I'm qualified to do anyways, right? I got a, a pre-seminary degree in college and I got a seminary degree. I'm, I'm unhirable outside of this, right, men? But, but truly, honestly, men, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. I don't see myself doing anything else. But that doesn't mean that it's easy. It is hard. And it's hard because I'm a, a, a fallen person. Because the curse of the fall still lingers, right? I'm a believer. I'm a follower of Christ. I've been redeemed. But men, my flesh is still there. And as I battle that flesh, as I battle that flesh, man, I need you to pray for me so that I would be an effective shepherd of God's flock, that I would maintain that willing and submissive spirit, that I would have that humility and that eternal mindset as I shepherd the flock, and that I would be living a life of winsome integrity so that I can call you and say, you know what, man, follow me as I follow Christ. It is a tall order, a tall task, and I can't do it in my flesh. I'm not worthy of the calling in my flesh but through God's spirit working in me and through your prayers, holding me up and holding up the rest of our pastors in this church, we can shepherd the flock of God that is among us, exercising oversight the way that he has called us to. Let's pray right now. Father, we thank you for this guideline, this blueprint for how we should shepherd the flock well. And God, I pray for us as pastors here at this church that we would be willing, God, that we would be saying every single morning, here I am, Lord, use me that we would be responding to every circumstance that comes across our desk, whether it's a counseling situation or it's administration, that we would be saying, let me do this with everything I have for the glory of God because this is shepherding the flock. God, I pray that we would also be men doing this for the right motives, that we would be humble, God, and that we would be eternally minded. Guard us against wanting to be a celebrity pastor. Guard us against wanting the spotlight, wanting the acclaim of men. Lord, for one day that will all perish. God, anchor our thoughts, our minds to the eternal reward that we have waiting for us in Christ. And may that drive our our motivation. And Lord, I also pray that we as as pastors would be those that are living lives of of winsome integrity, that we would be compassionate and kind and, and endear ourselves to the flock while living a godly life that we can say to our flock, follow us as we follow Christ. Father, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.